Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Practical Radicals podcast. I'm Deepak Bhargava. And I'm Stephanie Luce. On this episode, we explore power. What are the different forms of power and how can underdogs use them against much more powerful opponents? We'll be joined by Elise Hogue, who's former head of NARAL Pro-Choice America. Elise and her NARAL colleague, Ellie Langford, co-wrote The Lie That Binds, a brilliant book analyzing the American rights strategies for building power over the past several decades. I don't really think that the Koch brothers have a strong opinion on abortion. I think what they do have a strong opinion on is that there aren't a lot of people willing to knock doors to make them more money. Organizers talk a lot about power, building it, getting it, and challenging it. But I'm not sure we're always crystal clear on our definition of what power is. And all too often, people on the left seem allergic to seeking power. One of the great problems of history is that the concepts of love and power have usually been contrasted as opposites, polar opposites. So that love is identified with a resignation of power and power with a denial of love. Now we got to get this thing right. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. That was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. from his 1967 speech, Where Do We Go From Here? His call to get over our weariness of power is a big theme of our book, Practical Radicals, Seven Strategies to Change the World. But what is power, and what forms does it take? I got a memorable lesson in the different forms of power in the early 2000s at a gathering of immigrant rights leaders in Tucson, Arizona. Fifteen armed far-right activists crashed our meeting and threatened to perform citizens' arrests and to call Customs and Border Patrol. Some of the immigrant leaders at the meeting were undocumented. So, playing for time, I and a few others got the armed white guys outside and asked them some questions. It turned out that a few of them were part of law enforcement agencies and had close ties to Republican lawmakers. They believed that Arizona was being, quote, invaded, and that they were heroes, not terrorist vigilantes. Undocumented movement colleagues were able to leave through a back entrance while the militia members were distracted. These right-wing activists relied on multiple forms of power to break up the meeting. Their numbers and organization, arms and the threat of violence, the power of the state through their connection to law enforcement, and a popular ideology that legitimized the persecution of immigrants. Later, we debriefed and we got a lot of insight from the experience about how different parts of the state's white power structure were actually very closely connected. And we came to understand that our opponents were using many forms of power to keep us down. In our book, Tipak and I argue that to win transformational change, organizers must study overdogs to learn how they gain power and what they do to maintain it. But it's not enough to understand how to react to power from above. Organizers and movement builders also need to assess and build their own power. Some activists have an aversion to power, viewing it as inevitably corrupting. And many people's experience with power is abusive, so it's understandable that they might have a distaste for it. 
But power exists, and to not name it or fight for it means ceding it to the overdogs. Practical Radicals grew out of a graduate course that Stephanie and I taught about strategy. And when we launched it, we knew that we had to talk about power. Stephanie and Penny Lewis, our colleague who co-taught with us that first semester, had both studied a range of competing theories of power in their academic work. And I'd encountered other frameworks from community organizing. So that all made it kind of overwhelming to figure out where to start. Yeah, it was tough. There are lots of frameworks to analyze power, but we needed concepts that were most useful for organizers in the field. And we needed a way to understand both the kinds of power that overdogs use to win and maintain the status quo, as well as the forms of power that underdogs can use for liberation. So we tried out ideas with our students to see what resonated. In the end, we settled on six forms of power, drawing on the work of the influential sociologists Michael Mann and Eric Olin Wright, who happened to be my advisor in graduate school. Before we get to Stephanie's fascinating interview with Elise Hoag, we want to take you on a quick tour of the six forms of power that we investigate more deeply in our book. Solidarity power, disruptive power, economic power, ideological power, political power, and military power. First, let me just say that these are overlapping. They're not mutually exclusive. And in fact, you can use one form of power to build another form. The first of these is what we call solidarity power, or some academics call this associational power. This is the power that comes from working together as coworkers, as neighbors, as voters. It's the power that comes from numbers. I felt this myself when I was trying to uh, build a union at the University of California. Uh, grad students came together and we would go to people's offices and talk to them about their working conditions and see what were the challenges they were facing. And there was always that light bulb moment when people realized their individual problem was not just an individual problem, that in fact, we could only solve this by working together collectively. And that's the moment of solidarity power when you realize that coming together in numbers is a way to change the world. So another example we write about in the book is the grassroots organization Make the Road New York. They built an incredible and powerful organization of working class immigrants. And together with a broad coalition, they launched a campaign to win a excluded worker fund in New York State. And through that campaign, One of the peaks of it was a sustained hunger strike that lasted 23 days, led by members, most of them undocumented, of Make the Road. This small group of people, backed up by the solidarity power that had been built over many, many years by Make the Road, won an unprecedented $2 billion in desperately needed relief for workers who'd been left out of the relief packages that had been passed previously by Congress. We're going to talk to Angeles Solis and Jose Lopez, who worked on the campaign in our fourth episode, so be sure to check that out when it drops on March 12th. The second form of power we talk about is the power to disrupt, to shut things down through strikes, through sit-ins, through other forms of non-cooperation. This is a form of power that overdogs can use as well as underdogs. It's not just a symbolic protest, it's actually making things shut down, or as what the Italian theorist Luca Perone called, the power to wound. 
I remember hearing about my grandfather, who was a teamster in San Francisco, and he participated in the 1934 general strike. Two workers had been killed in a labor dispute in San Francisco, and 21 unions joined in to shut the city down for several days. Another famous example is the Flint sit-down strike of 1936 and 1937 when thousands of General Motors workers took over auto factories and simply sat down for 44 days. And of course, the United Auto Workers just won a major victory. The deals guarantee auto workers their largest pay increases in decades and could affect how other unions bargain their future contracts. We usually think of disruption in terms of strikes at the workplace. But disruption can be used by underdogs to stop the functioning of any oppressive system, including patriarchy or white supremacy. In the book, we talk about examples like the welfare rights movement, which won massive gains in benefits and income for poor people all over the country. And this was a movement that was led by low-income black women, who found a vulnerability in the system and exploited it to force the state to respond to their needs. Another example is the Freedom Riders in 1961, organized by the Congress of Racial Equality and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. The Freedom Riders were mostly young people who rode in racially integrated groups on buses bound for the Deep South. Their goal was to challenge state segregation laws that were still being enforced even though the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled them to be unconstitutional. The Freedom Riders were attacked by mobs, firebombed, and arrested by the hundreds. But their strategy of disruption proved essential to ending the system of Jim Crow segregation. A third form is ideological power. And this is the power to shape people's sense of their identity, their worldview, how they make sense of the world. This is in part about the common sense that prevails to explain society, but it also refers to the ways in which the dominant culture reproduces itself and stays dominant, using institutions like the courts, the media, the educational system, and even using police and the political system to make people think change is not possible. Some people use the term hegemony when they talk about this form of ideological power. A great example of ideological power in action today is the panic about critical race theory, or CRT. Right-wing provocateur Chris Rufo cooked up this panic as a deeply deceptive strategy to shift the conversation about racism after the wave of protests sparked by the murder of George Floyd. Here's comedian John Oliver explaining Rufo's real agenda. And he's openly admitted that he's been engaged in a deliberate rebranding exercise, tweeting we have successfully frozen their brand, critical race theory, into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. The goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. And the thing is, it fucking worked. Because whenever you hear CRT now, you are not hearing about the academic discipline. You're hearing about a category so broad, it encompasses both the craziest thing in the newspaper and also, crucially, any conversation about race that someone does not want to have. The fourth form of power is economic power. This is the power that comes from controlling the wealth and resources in society, such as who runs the factories, who decides what we produce. We can measure this in a lot of different ways, 
One of the statistics is just looking at the share of wealth that's going to the top 1% and even to the top 0.1%. It's been increasing dramatically over recent decades while the share going to workers has been falling. Here's University of California at Berkeley professor Robert Reich. Now just 244 of the richest Americans have more wealth than half the U.S. population. We love this myth that in America you get ahead through hard work. But do you really think those 244 people are working harder than the bottom 166 million Americans put together? So overdogs hold the bulk of economic power, especially within our form of racial capitalism. But underdogs can wield economic power as well, particularly if they use their solidarity power to pool their resources and use disruptive power to wound. An example that we explore in our first episode is the famous Project C, also known as Project Confrontation. This was the sustained campaign to bring an end to segregation in Birmingham, Alabama. The fifth form of power is political power. And by this, we mean the power to govern. This is always under contestation. And underdogs and overdogs fight over this all the time. In the book we write about the 1970s, when the conservative movement came together to really ramp up their effort to govern. They had been worried about the growing power of labor unions, the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, And they thought they had to take drastic steps to regain their control over the presidency and, in fact, all levels of government. There was a corporate lawyer named Lewis Powell who wrote a 34-page memo to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. It offered a roadmap for the corporate takeover of American democracy. This has become known simply as the Powell Memo. Here's the ghost of Lewis Powell reading an excerpt. Businesses must learn the lesson long ago learned by labor and other self-interest groups. This is the lesson that political power is necessary, that such power must be assiduously cultivated, and that when necessary, it must be used aggressively and with determination, without embarrassment and without the reluctance, which has been so characteristic of American business. So, political power includes the power to set and implement laws to control borders and to use the powers of the state to reward or punish Some progressives are skeptical of political power and think that in a capitalist society, the state will always be controlled by overdogs. For them, there's no point in engaging in political work. But we take the view that while the state may be biased in favor of racial capitalism, it's a contradictory space, and it's necessary to fight in that space. And in fact, that quote from Lewis Powell shows just how important it is. Economic power is important, and it can heavily influence political power, but the relationship isn't unidirectional. Political power can also affect economic and other forms of power. In our last episode, Alex Hortel Fernandez talked about how conservatives made a deliberate effort to capture power at the state level, and they used that political power to try to crush unions, and by doing so, they increased their profitability. Overdogs often use political power to increase their wealth buying off politicians to win things like financial deregulation or drilling rights. But underdogs can use the political system too. They pass minimum wage laws, they can stop fracking, or win child tax credits. There's a lot at stake. And finally, the sixth form of power is military power. We adopt this framework from the sociologist Michael Mann, who studied power globally and historically, and decided to separate military power from political power because 
even though militaries usually serve under the political leader, they can also act independently. They can and often have staged coups, for example, or they can refuse to follow orders. They might have their own independent base of power. We don't usually see the separation of political power and military power in the U.S., but we had a dramatic glimpse of it when General Mark Milley began to defy Donald Trump and made it clear that he wasn't going to back Trump in any attempt to illegally stay in office. Here's Milley giving his farewell speech in late September of 2023, just a week after Trump suggested he should be killed. We are unique among the world's armies. We are unique among the world's militaries. We don't take an oath to a country. We don't take an oath to a tribe. We don't take an oath to a religion. We don't take an oath to a king or a queen or to a tyrant or a dictator. And we don't take an oath to a wannabe dictator. The separation between military and political power is really important for progressives to understand right now because of the rise of authoritarianism and the threat that we face from the far right. In the U.S., much of the police and border guards have become militarized, and they show the same ability to act independently. The carceral state plays a key role in maintaining racial capitalism. Right. And again, these forms of power are not mutually exclusive. For example, disruptive power can overlap with economic power, such as in a labor union strike, or can overlap with political power, such as the kinds of general strikes that happen in other countries to force a vote on a key issue. So this framework of six forms of power can help underdogs think about their strategy. The type of power you have access to will impact the kind of strategy model you can adopt. It's tempting to call for things like a general strike, but that requires a whole lot of solidarity power within and between workplaces, as well as solidarity with the general public. And most importantly, the ability to actually disrupt the economic or political order. We'll talk more about the connection between sources of power and strategy in future episodes. But these concepts can also help us better understand the opposition, how the overdogs have used various kinds of power to get where they are. In our book, Practical Radicals, we show how different actors and organizations employed various kinds of power to bring about our current system, a system we call racial neoliberalism. Racial neoliberalism is a form of capitalism based on the idea that governments should exist primarily to enforce social control and white supremacy and help employers and investors maximize profit. It emphasizes individual responsibility, arguing wrongly that racism is simply a matter of individual attitudes. Racial neoliberalism came about in an uneven, contested way. It wasn't a master plan imposed from above, but rather through many fights in various arenas. In our book, we look at six individuals as examples to show the different kinds of power We start off with Lewis Powell, who we already mentioned. A few months after Powell wrote his memo, President Richard Nixon nominated him to be a justice on the Supreme Court, where Powell put his pro-business ideas into practice over the next decade and a half. Powell wasn't the only overdog working to build ideological power for the conservative movement. Others were forming new think tanks and spreading their ideas in various ways. But the Powell Memo is a vivid illustration of the ways neoliberals advanced their agenda. Neoliberals also organized within the political arena to capture the state. One way they did that was to sow racial divides and incite resentment from white people against recent gains made by the civil rights movement. 
This can be seen in the Republican Southern strategy and the work of people like Lee Atwater. Atwater was a notorious political operative and later chair of the Republican National Committee. Here's Atwater in 1981 explaining in stark terms the racist strategy Republicans were using to win elections. His quote includes the N-word, which we bleep out here. You start out in 1954 by saying by 1968, you can't say that hurts your backfire, so you say stuff like uh, forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you get so abstract now, you're talking about cutting taxes, and all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things, and the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. Atwater's rhetorical strategy is what's come to be known as dog whistle politics. You can't say the N-word, but you can say forced busing or tax relief, and it has the same effect of hurting black people. The right also had a clear assessment of key institutions that stood in the way of advancing their agenda, institutions like unions, as we discussed in our last episode with Alex Rotel fernandez So these are just a few examples of how racial neoliberalism came about. In our book, we talk about Jack Welsh, the former CEO of GE, who used economic power to break unions and set a whole agenda for corporate America. We write about Ronald Reagan using disruptive power when he fired 13,000 air traffic controllers, and about Henry Kissinger orchestrating a violent coup to overthrow President Salvador Allende in Chile to block growing left political power. We also write about Phyllis Schlafly, who built solidarity power by uniting different factions of Republican women into a common tent. To learn more about that, we talked to Elise Hogue, former president of NARAL Pro-Choice America and co-author of The Lie That Binds. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Elise. Thank you so much for having me, Stephanie. In The Lie That Binds, you write about a number of people who worked to build a coalition in the 1960s, really in the 1970s, a, a conservative coalition that brought together a number of actors and interests that were not natural allies to begin with. So we wanted to just ask you a bit about that. Who were the the players that really came together? Who was uh, doing that work to form that coalition? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting um, look at sort of history, the way it gets told today versus what actually happens. So um, I started digging into the history of the radical right because conventional wisdom would have it that they came out of a backlash to the road decision in 1973 when abortion became legal across all 50 states. But actually nothing could be further from the truth. Um, this sort of new coalition sprung from a much earlier court decision, and that was Brown versus Board of Education. And the implications of Brown versus Board of Education, which was ultimately the desegregation of our school system, was that it challenged the prevailing authority of the church, specifically but not exclusively the evangelical church, to run their own tax-exempt academies, basically. And in fact, these were so devoted to a very white patriarchal form of Christianity that they were colloquially known at the time as segregation academies. Um, ultimately, the truth about how the modern right came to find its way into politics was they didn't want their kids to go to school with black kids, as the Supreme Court found that they had to. So what you had were a bunch of quite conservative, quite rigid um, religious leaders 
who had never dabbled in politics before, saw it as kind of a tainted space in society, um, and in fact had argued seclusion to their parishioners, all of a sudden deciding that they had to organize their parishioners in order to fight back against school desegregation. So, you know, that was sort of the 60s and and early 70s. And, and what they found is that they kind of exhausted all legal avenues of that. And the Civil Rights Act sort of was mainstreamed, both culturally and legally. And they ultimately had exhausted all of their avenues on um, the front of fighting school desegregation. But they had tapped into something really, really powerful, which was a lot of different kinds of audiences who really wanted to prop up a white, Christian, patriarchal power structure within society. And you started to see these strands come together, really not just when they lost their case for um, fighting school desegregation, but when Phyllis Schlafly, who sort of rose in parallel um, to fight the Equal Rights Amendment, um, won her fight. And that kind of shocked everyone. And we can talk more about that if you want. Um, and so there was actually a well-documented conference call where the sort of followers of Phyllis Schlafly and the followers of um, the religious right, the moral majority, Jerry Falwell, got together on a conference call looking for a new issue that could uh, cohere these disaggregate parts of um, the political uh ecosystem in service of continuing to prop up this white male patriarchal view of, of power. Um, and they kind of threw out a bunch of issues and ideas. And somebody said, what about abortion? And they were like, huh, abortion, that sounds good. And thus began this urban myth that abortion had always been deeply embedded in the religious rights um, ideology when nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, so in this history that abortion is not so much chosen because it's the burning moral question of the times, but it was a strategic decision in order to get a movement going. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there there were some authentic ideas that abortion was bad, more actually in Catholicism pre-Roe than in evangelical um, tradition. In fact, the leading evangelical at the time, a man named W.A. Criswell, who is also from Texas, I'm from Texas listeners, um, said when Roe came down, what's good for the mother is good for the family, and this is really not much of our concern. And as late as 1976, the Convention on Southern Baptist actually upheld Roe and the right of individual families to choose. Um, however, what they actually did quite intuitively successfully discern that um, although most people were comfortable with the idea of individual choice around abortion, people really didn't want to talk about abortion publicly. And all of the ancillary issues surrounding abortion, uh, women's empowerment, sex, right? <laughs> you got to have sex to get pregnant if you're going to choose to keep or terminate the pregnancy. And particularly when you overlaid race and race on sexuality, these were deeply divisive and challenging concepts. And so the combination of that underlying discomfort 
with the rise of Black power, the rise of women's power, the rise of sexual liberation and LGBTQ power, um, with the discomfort of talking about abortion at all, created this very potent tip of the spear for them to organize behind. In fact, there is some evidence that what they really wanted to go after was contraception, which had been made legal for unmarried women around that same time, um, because contraception was what was really upsetting the apple cart when it came to power at home and power in the workplace. Um, But that contraception had become way too popular by then. So they thought, let's start with abortion. Um, It makes people uncomfortable. They're not going to want to discuss it. And uh, we can use that as a proxy for all of these other issues um, that we'd like to use to stall social progress. Yeah. So I want to ask you more about Phyllis Schlafly, who you referred to, and how she kind of, you know, she spearheaded a movement to defeat the Equal Rights Amendment, much to everyone's shock. Most people's shock. They thought it was sure to win. And she used brilliant strategy to really fight the campaign and stop it. So can you talk some more about her strategy Yeah, if there was ever a frustrated woman, it was Phyllis Schlafly. Um, You know, she uh, should have been the leading feminist, but um, she found what many before her and subsequent have found that through um, your willingness to be individually tokenized, you can gain your own power at the expense of other people's power. Phyllis Schlafly, um, you know, was a sort of precocious teenager who was raised in the Goldwater conservative tradition. She was an extreme neoconservative who had very, very big concerns about U.S. foreign policy um, post-World War II. And she yearned to be taken seriously as a national security expert. Um, She found even within her own party that uh, people kind of welcomed her in the room, but then wanted her to stick to her own lane and not challenge the big boys on the important issues like national security and foreign policy. She really relished being in the room. And so she uh, was offered really and carved out a place for herself being the female voice actually challenging the idea of women's equality. Um, The ERA was on the verge of passage. They only needed a couple more states to ratify before it was a done deal. Everyone had accepted its inevitable realization. Um, And there was a very, very small, very right-wing contingent within Congress that had emerged from a lot of the similar dynamics as the moral majority that was really held bent on upholding the patriarchal structure of society. And they said to her, what can you do about this? And she was an organizer. I mean, she really had it down the clipboards, the phone trees. She knew that all of these women were at home and that activated, they could flood letters and phone calls into their congressional representatives. And she vowed to put tremendous pressure on the legislatures and the governors in the remaining states. Um, These women really, really went to work and they not only defeated the 
measure in the remaining states, but they, in fact, were so successful that they had states starting to repeal and pull back support for the ERA. Now, I think what's really important is not just that she organized, but how she organized. Um, It was a real appeal to um, a very middle class, very bought in, almost exclusively white um, women who were really protecting what privilege they had in society. And so the ERA was not defeated, again, as they would have you believe today, on issues of abortion. They almost never talked about abortion um, in the fight against the ERA. They talked about the draft about endangering your daughters by them being caught up in the draft. And they talked a tremendous amount about um, equal rights, meaning your husband was not going to have to pay you spousal support or alimony when he decided to kick you to the curb for a younger version of yourself. And that was deeply terrifying to a whole demographic who actually had not gone out and gotten educations and gone to work because, you know, this was 50s, 60s. There was a booming middle class of stay-at-home moms and housewives whose primary concerns and visceral concerns were appealed to through this drive to defeat the ERA. Phyllis Schlafly, to her dying day, was actually a racist xenophobe. We should be really, really clear about that. She was kind of uncomfortable with the abortion issue. She had to be persuaded to take it on after the defeat of the ERA, although she saw the political promise in it. Um, But she wrote one of the early endorsements of Donald Trump when there was still a really robust primary field in the Republican Party in 2016. And she said it was not because of his stance on abortion, because of course there were many, many candidates who had a longer track record and a longer history on um, opposing abortion. She actually talked about it in terms of his willingness to take a hard line on closing the borders. And she was deeply, deeply uh, aghast at um, immigrants and refugees coming into this country. She didn't live long enough to see him elected, but I think we can say she would have been very, very pleased by the outcome. Yeah, so she was able to bring together women across geographies and across different kinds of ideological traditions and build this coalition to defeat the ERA, which then got folded into what became this larger Christian and fundamentalist coalition. That's correct, yes. And she became so influential in doing so because really what had been lacking in the Republican Party up till then were foot soldiers, And not just the Republican Party, but politics was often determined by a small cabal of people. You know, there's all the imagery of the backroom cigar chomping dudes who are determining the outcome of uh, political races. And and some of that was true. But you started to have an emergence, particularly um, through the anti-war movement and some of the aforementioned civil rights movement of... um, grassroots that were demonstrating a preference for the Democrats, right? And um, the Democratic Party. And the Republican Party was lacking foot soldiers. And so through her campaign to defeat the ERA, she had proven that she found something that could start to mobilize commensurately with what was happening on the Democratic side. So that gave her a tremendous amount of power within the party. And in fact, what came next in 1980 was largely a product of Phyllis Schlafly's uh, power. 
because not anyone was bullish on Ronald Reagan except for Phyllis Schlafly, who really had an eye for charisma and talent, understood that his politics and positions on things like abortion, which had become central to the party, were mutable, were flexible, but his deep aversion to gender equality, racial equality, was the kind of emotional bellwether that she wanted to guide the country. And she turned out to be perfectly correct about that. And there are perfect parallels between Reagan's rise to power and Trump's rise to power, you know, 40 years later. Yeah, it's remarkable. The whole history is uh, so fascinating, I think, when people learn this who don't, don't know it because they take for granted that the kind of ruling coalition is in power. They forget that they had to actually do the organizing work. Maybe people associate organizing with progressives or with the left, but in fact, these right-wing forces did the organizing work, as you say Schlafly did, and they had to construct these alliances that were not natural. Those alliances were made and they could be unmade. Um, they're They're not written in stone. You know, a lot of the strategies that the conservatives use are, are they they use a lot of dirty tricks to be <laughs> to be real. They use fake facts and they distort things, but and they are things that defy progressive values that we don't necessarily want to emulate. But I think there may be some lessons we can learn from Schlafly and um, about building political power and political strategy. So, what do you think are the lessons we might take? Well, I will say that difference between the two sides, and I have written about this in the book and then extensively since the book came out, is that when you're pursuing what is quite obviously and acknowledged to be um, a minoritarian agenda, then you benefit tremendously from disengagement, right? And so they had to suppress the, the willingness of people who disagreed with them um, from engaging in political and civic processes in order to get their way. Abortion was really useful in that. We talked about it. People were uncomfortable talking about it. So the silence around abortion allowed them to gain power. Um, we talk about them using mis- and disinformation, although in analog terms, it was just called propaganda, right? Um, to suppress engagement in, in um, voting and also in, you know, the kind of public discourse where the battle of ideas is won and lost. Um, and then we talk about them capturing institutions and the system to assert minority rule, which of course the most obvious is that they had a long-term strategy around court capture, which was sealed with uh, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Coney Barrett being seated on the court, which is the ultimate weapon of minority rule that is not accountable. So I always say, despite loathing a lot of their ideological aims and their underlying philosophies, you have to give them grudging respect for actually, A, having a long-term strategy, B, pursuing it outside and inside the context of electoral politics, right? You This, this right-wing movement never believed they worked for the candidates. They really believed that the candidates worked for them. Um, and C, some willingness, and I don't want to overplay this, but some willingness to put their differences aside and focus on 
where they had common ground. And those co- that common ground was ideological. It was not mostly around policy debates, right? And so um, creating a hierarchy where vision, which I find to be dystopian, but they had a vision, um, would cohere them even when they got into skirmishes about the strategies to achieve that vision or the policies that would implement that vision. And they did it pretty well. Now, there is and have always been some skirmishes um, within that party. And I think we are um, uniquely poor at exploiting their uh, weaknesses, whereas they are excellent, excellent at perceiving where there are fractures within our coalition and it, and leaning into those. Right. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot, there's quite honestly, quite a lot for us. Yeah. To learn and, and maybe also for us to understand some of the potential fractures in the Republican party today, like you say, like the abortion issue was an issue that, they could find some common ground around, but a real difference there about how serious it was for some people and others in the party don't see it as the litmus test issue in the same way. So, Yeah. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about abortion um, that sort of led me to go to NARAL and spend so much time trying to unpack how effective they had been using abortion as a wedge is that they knew the truth. They knew that they didn't have majority opinion on their side when Roe came down. They knew that they didn't have it when they chose the issue. And they knew know that they don't have it today, right? Um, what they did, however, was silence the middle because they made it really, really socially unacceptable to talk about, create infighting among the Democrats and then also use, again, disinformation and propaganda to create a sense of revulsion. Um, they started to talk about infanticide, right? Like they talked about fetal pain, the kinds of things that just make you go, ooh, or make you feel like you have to be an expert. They misnamed bills like the heartbeat bill when every medical professional will tell you that six weeks is not when you can detect a heartbeat in a fetus, but they use this incredible narrative prowess to build stories that a removed sympathy from the woman in question, which had like women had tremendous sympathy when Roe came down because they were dying in illegal abortions, shift that sympathy to the potential of life and then do so with a gruesomeness that made most people withdraw from the conversation. And they would attack first. I mean, when I was at NARAL, I would always counsel Dems to to come out with the first swing because we had the majority of opinion on our side. And when we set the frame, we won. But they really, really preyed on our silence. So one of the sort of antidotes to this is to recognize where we do have sympathy, compassion, majority opinion on our side, and go first, right? And we often don't do this. And um, and then to recognize that that is inherently connected with weaknesses on their side. And so not just to go first to establish our moral, ethical, and political frame, but then to force them on defense, right? Most people find it absolutely abhorrent 
that almost every Republican has signed on to the most extreme version of abortion restriction, which we know is resulting in criminalization of pregnant women, in doctors being targeted, in poor maternal outcomes, in people like coming close to dying, if not dying because of pregnancy. But it doesn't stop at abortion. One of the things I talk about quite a lot, um, being from Texas, is somehow they have convinced us that standing up for um, our trans brothers and sisters is a political vulnerability on our side. But if you actually look at the extremity of their positions through the policies that they're passing, in Texas, it's legal for the state to remove a child from your home because you think you are doing what's right by your own child. That is abhorrent and antithetical to the to most libertarian-leaning Republicans that make up a lot of their coalition. But we too often shrink back from that argument rather than lean into that argument. Similarly, when you look at um, the question of trans sports players, right? And this has happened in a couple states where um, the, the logical conclusion of implementation of that policy is strangers examining your children's genitals or your girls having to report their periods to governmental authorities. Those are loathsome policies to most Americans. And so we need to actually call them out on this and not wait for them to hit first and then try and come back at them. The other thing that people, I think, um, underappreciate is how the corporate interests have made alliances with the sort of ideological extreme right. You know, I always said, I don't really think that the Koch brothers have a strong opinion on abortion. I think what they do have a strong opinion on is that there aren't a lot of people willing to knock doors to make them more money. <laughs> but there were a lot of people who were willing to make common cause and turn out for the same candidates who would do both. And one of the ways that we have um, failed to understand that there are some natural schisms there, I'll just give a recent example, is when um, the Fifth Circuit ruling came down on the medication abortion drug, um, which essentially said, the FDA doesn't count. This one judge can rule that you cannot use medication abortion. This was actually terrifying to pharmaceutical companies. They don't love the FDA, but they have come to build in the predictability of that process and the stability that comes with FDA approval and being able to sell their product. This was potentially turning upside down decades and decades of market stability that the corporate wing of the Republican Party had come to depend on at the behest of the more extreme right, patriarchal right, who wanted to remove as many rights from women as possible. That passed in a blip and the Supreme Court actually recognized the vulnerability and kind of did some things to fix it. But we did not lean in. We did not seek to exploit that division nearly as much as we possibly could have. Yeah, that's a great example. And I think what, you know, you've written about and, and talked about is understanding the ways in which their strategy, they push, and sometimes they failed, sometimes they pushed too far and failed, but they did so in a way that 
might have opened terrain to keep going because we weren't mobilizing in the same way to fight back when they failed and take the fight in another direction. So, and in some ways, maybe that's helpful for people to understand too, because it's not as if, sometimes it seems like it was inevitable, like they've, they had this long-term plan and they just plotted it out and they've, you know, succeeded all along, but they did have some failures along the way. They had a lot of setbacks along the way. I mean, we write quite a bit in the book about the 90s. Um, and part of that was their inability to control the more extreme wings of their party, right? Um, it In the late 80s, uh, the base was growing frustrated with Reagan, who had failed to deliver on some core promises. And he even did so knowingly that the political backlash was going to be terrible if he actually took steps on abortion and some other things. And so he tried to mollify them um, with some horrible narratives that have stuck with us for far too long, like the idea that, um, you know, welfare queens were the primary recipients of, of social safety benefits, which of course was racialized and completely debunked and unproven. Um, and then, of course, you know, just the the war on crack and mass incarceration. Those were things he used to try and play to the racist undercurrents of the base and mollify them. But when he failed to deliver on some key fundamental things, people were very frustrated. The party had actually manufactured a grassroots that now was completely zealotous on the issue of abortion. You can only say abortion is murder so many times, both for new generations who grow up hearing that are going to believe that it's true. Clinic violence was climbing, doctors were being shot, and there was just this sense of massive overreach that put them in the wilderness for, you know, uh, most of the 90s. Um, And they were really pretty freaked out about it. Um, They hated the Clinton years. They felt like it was a repudiation of everything they had built. Um, And you know, quite honestly, George W. Bush was not particularly their top choice in 2000 um, because they had been disappointed in his father as a vice president, saw him as too moderate. Um, so he had to win them over. And he did. He worked hard. He sort of um, disowned prior views on abortion and contraception. He had wholly adopted evangelicalism. He had um, made himself more radical as the governor of Texas. Um, And ultimately, he came closer to delivering for them. Um, Although at that point, um, there was a shift in focus Uh, among their grassroots to the xenophobia that was coming with mass migration. And Bush, being from Texas, was always an immigration reformer, not a build the wall kind of guy. And we then, of course, saw the election of the first black president in the United States, which really got the more racist component of their grassroots quite activated. And, you know, I think a lot of what we've seen since 2008 with the rise of the Tea Party, which um, had some, you know, real integral connections with MAGA Republicans, um, sort of resulted in us having four years under Donald Trump. Yeah. And I think that gets at one of the major contributions of your book is that I think a lot of people talk about neoliberalism and the the current period is as a primarily economic phenomenon that profitability was starting to wane in the 
in the 1970s and business leaders were worried about maintaining profits and, and growing their business. And they implemented all of these reforms, which set the table for where we are today. And while that's part of the story, your book is really making the case that that's only one part of the story. There's also this very serious uh, racial backlash, gender backlash, concern about immigration and xenophobia, that those are as central to understanding this current period as the economic trends. Yeah, I think that's totally true. I mean, I, I think it can be both and, and in fact, many times, depending on what segment of the population you're dealing with, those things are deeply, deeply intertwined, right? Um, and I think people underestimated um, the kind of smart that Trump is. Um, you know, I remember when he started to run in 2012 first, you know, and then in 2016, um, people treated it like a joke. They would make fun of his sort of very simplistic um, ways of talking about things. Um, Trump is incredibly smart. I talk about it in that sort of amygdala reptilian way that intuits where people viscerally are coming from, right? And um, the the left and progressives and Democrats are a lot more heady, right? We always think if we can just get the right policies and talk about um, the way that we are focused on closing the wealth gap and, and all of these things, which are incredibly laudable and crucial to the progressive agenda, um, that we're going to convince people that we are the right ones to back. Um, Trump hit them in the gut, right? And they felt seen in ways that uh, I think they had not been in a long time. Economic outcomes have been worsening for some time for a lot of people. Trump very, very clearly, despite his immense wealth, um, put himself on the side of the little guy and actually said, you know, that he he understood their pain, but he gave it a reason. He gave it a cause. He gave them justification in feeling like they don't have theirs because other people have been prioritized over and over and over again. And one doesn't work without the other, right? Um, he created a very zero-sum conversation and not only said, I feel your pain, which to some degree was economic, but that is not the entire story, right? A lot of well-off people voted for Trump. Um, and sometimes that pain was social and status dislocation that was coming from having to be forced to live in a multiracial pluralistic society. And Trump gave them permission to be victims of that. And victimization is a very, very powerful drug when it comes to movement building and, um, and quite honestly, just base politics, electoral politics. And, you know, nobody has locked on, a lock on victimization and people are legitimately victimized sometimes in our society. But Trump was just Machiavellian and the way he was able to manipulate that among the, the cohorts that he needed. And by the way, he's doing it again very effectively, and he carved his path on certainly xenophobia and some racism, but a lot on misogyny, a lot on misogyny and the dwindling status of men, which is a in 
a direct linear coherence from where we started with women's lib and the moral majority trying to assert, assert patriarchal control um, is very, very prevalent in Trump's message today. And it's very resonant. And it's resonant not just with white men, but with men across ethnicity. And the New York Times has been paying an enormous amount of attention over the last few weeks to a poll that came out um, that showed that Black men are increasing their support of a hypothetical Trump nomination um, several times over from what we saw in 2016. And we're never going to be able to beat that until we actually make an attempt to understand it and not dismiss these as simply identity issues that have nothing to do with people's feeling about their station in life. Right. That's great. The final question I'd like to ask you, Elise, is to think about power. And our episode today, we're really focusing on different forms of power. We talked a lot about what we call solidarity power was the power of Phyllis Schlafly used to organize, to actually do the old-fashioned skills of organizing and building coalitions. And clearly, the conservative right was building political power. But what can you say that the right really understands about power that maybe we don't understand on the left? So I would, I would offer a couple things. I think that the right really understands narrative power, but even further than that, they understand every individual's desire to be the protagonist in their own story. And they really use their narrative power to set individuals up to see themselves as not just participatory, but instrumental in the outcomes that they are seeking. Um, we often talk at people, <laughs> tell them why the things we're proposing are good for them. We don't actually invite them, with some exceptions, by the way, but we don't invite them to actually help us weave together a powerful narrative in which they are their own protagonists rather than the Democrats or the government or some do-gooder being the protagonist in the narrative. And I think that that's really important. The other thing that I think the right understands is that there um, are different kinds of power and they're not actually afraid to suppress power when it doesn't align with their interests. Um, because we believe in participation and engagement um, as a core goal in and of itself, suppression of power, even when it's not aligned, is anathema to us because we just want to believe that if we can organize enough people, we are the majority and we will win. And by the way, I also believe that. But that gets into something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I'd like to leave you with, which is the right has always created narratives in which the apocalypse is prominently featured, right? It's grounded in a Christian theology. The apocalypse is actually not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And so when they point to all of these sins in society and forces that are dangerous to their own vision, it's win-win for them. It's either they aggregate power to their side to enforce their vision, or it's driving towards an apocalypse, which their base is actually okay with because they believe that they will be delivered onto heaven. Increasingly, as things have gotten more dire, I have seen the left and have actually include myself in this for what it's worth, ringing the alarm bell louder and louder, screaming that Rose going to fall, screaming that climate chaos is upon us. True. 
in many cases. Much of that truth has been borne out. But our own apocalyptic narrative actually suppresses engagement from the people that we need. If it's game over, your participation doesn't matter. If the system is so rigged that minority rules, why am I going to spend what time I have on this earth? Increasingly little time when I could be with my family or pursuing joy in civic participation. And so I really want us to take a hard look at the narratives we're weaving, the power that it will wield when we're inviting people in to be protagonists, to weave a better future and not just stop a cataclysmic one. That's uh, fantastic stuff. So thank you so much, Elise. It's been terrific to have you on the show and we really appreciate your work. Great. Thank you for having me, Stephanie. We need to know our history and how we got here. And understanding the six forms of power is a crucial tool for underdogs to be able to forge winning strategies. First, we can see that overdogs are not a monolith. Racial neoliberalism is a mixture of different theories and interests. It's the product of political battles and uneasy compromises. Just as it came into existence through power struggles in multiple arenas, it can be undone. Second, we need to continue to analyze the power that overdogs have today, where they're weak, where they're strong. For example, the ideological coherence around racial neoliberalism has been greatly weakened. Overdogs are struggling right now amongst themselves to develop a new narrative that offers a coherent worldview. Solidarity within the right is fragile. For example, neoliberals like the Koch brothers are not aligned with Trump. On the other hand, most parts of the right are getting stronger. Billionaires and corporations have amassed more economic power. Militaries and police have strengthened their arsenals and included things like surveillance technologies. And authoritarian mass movements are growing. This takes us back to the concept we talked about last week, the idea of conjunctural analysis. The kinds of power we are fighting and that we have access to shift over time. Practical radicals have to adapt their strategy based on the conjuncture and with a clear assessment of power. So that's all for this week's episode of Practical Radicals. Please check out our book, Practical Radicals, Seven Strategies to Change the World, available wherever books are sold. In our next episode, we'll focus on base building in the labor movement and talk with Greg Namaker, president of Minnesota's SEIU Local 26, which has been building power and working with union and community allies for over a decade to change the state of politics in Minnesota. And this is very exciting. They have been building towards a possible general strike in early March, which will be right after our next episode airs. Practical Radicals is made possible with support from the Roosevelt Institute. Harry Hanbury and Peter Kakoma produced the series, and Peter Kakoma is the series editor. Our theme music was composed by Christian Perez Yates and performed by Trio Gaffas. Additional music was by Christian Perez Yates and Peter Kakoma. If you enjoy the show, please follow and rate the show on your podcast app and share it with friends. Join us next time for more practical and radical strategies to change the world.